This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the new book, the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Neil Vallely, the author of Futilitarianism, Neoliberalism, and the Production of Uselessness. In Futilitarianism, Vallely eloquently tells the story of how neoliberalism transformed the relationship between utility maximization and the common good. Drawing on a vast array of contemporary examples from self-help literature and marketing jargon to political speeches and governmental responses to the COVID-19 pandemic, the book demonstrates that in the neoliberal decades, the practice of utility maximization traps us in useless and repetitive behaviors that foreclose the possibility of collective happiness. The book argues that at a time of epic-defining disasters from climate emergencies to deadly pandemics, countering the futility of neoliberal existence is essential to building an egalitarian, sustainable, and hopeful future. Neil Vallely is a political and social theorist based at the University of Otago, New Zealand. His research has appeared in journals such as Rethinking Marxism, Angelicae, and Poetics Today, and magazines including The New Internationalist and Roar. In 2022, he will take up a two-year Rutherford Foundation postdoctoral fellowship at Otago, working on the history of capitalism and migrant detention. An Italian translation of Futilitarianism will be published in March 2022. Neil, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Tom. Thanks for inviting me on. Uh, I'd like to start our discussion today by asking you what brought you to this project and especially this um, rather unique coinage. That is, why Futilitarianism and why now? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, so the, the book... The, the genesis of the book really began in 2015, 2016. I had just finished my PhD at Otago. Um, you might be able to tell from my accent that I'm originally from Ireland. Um, and then uh, Otago went through a big wave of humanities cuts in 2016. <clears throat> um, and so I started thinking at this time around the idea of uselessness around the, the, uh, around the humanities Um and not in the sense that, that other people thought about, which is you know de- defending the uselessness of the humanities, which you know is is a worthwhile endeavor in itself, but rather thinking about how the humanities have come to be conceived as as useless, and this then kind of the projects sort are of expanded from there. Um, I started to see that this this idea of uselessness, or what eventually I came to find as futility, 
actually permeates so much of everyday life in the 21st century and has, has become even a, li- a lived experience for many people. And so it's become a kind of subjective phenomenon as well. And then this took me into thinking about the relationship between utility and futility, which led me back into the history of utilitarianism, which we might talk a little bit about, um, and how that came. I started to see how the history of utilitarianism started to influence um, the rise of neoliberalism, um, but also how forms of um, so utility maximization have become central to, to actually existing neoliberalism. Um, and this is where it evolves into what I call futilitarianism, you know, the, the, where we are forced to kind of maximize utility on an individual level, but in doing so, it actually leads to the worsening of our kind of collective and, and um, social and economic conditions. Um, and I guess we'll, we'll get into that in more detail, but that, that's, that was kind of genesis of the idea and of, of the project. So you start um, your book by drawing what I think is a really important distinction between futility and nihilism. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you understand the differences between those two terms uh, and also the, the different variations on nihilism that you identify uh, in our contemporary culture? Yeah, thank you. Well, that's, it's really interesting because people have really um, uh, picked up on that distinction that I draw in the, in the introduction. And it's only a short, um, a short section um, of the introduction, but, it, but it is a, I think it is an important distinction that, I, that needs to be made. Um, so um, for me, I, I, I see the distinction between futility and nihilism in quite simple terms in that uh, nihilism is a kind of end in itself. So it requires a, a taking up of a certain position. And so in, in that, I use um, Simon Critchley, the philosopher Simon Critchley's distinction between what he calls passive nihilism and active nihilism. And passive nihilism for him is um, uh, forms of, of meaninglessness that, that manifest in a kind of stepping back from the world. Um, so it could be represented in kind of people just kind of accept that there's a kind of the world is meaninglessness and meaning meaningless and, and kind of just get on with things. And an act of nihilism, which is about trying to destroy the world as it exists to bring in a kind of new one. And he sees that in the form of kind of terrorism or, or things like that. But both are driven kind of by a, a kind of overall meaninglessness. Whereas futility for me is a, is a more un, kind of unconscious and insidious process where even lots of people might feel that they are actually contributing to the world in meaningful ways. Um, so that the futility actually exists kind of more in a background and you have to kind of strip it, strip it away to see, to see it. Whereas nihilism, I think can be quite obvious in, in many um, scenarios. So I see futility as the starting point of, of something beyond nihilism. So part of the, the, the desire to, to write the book and the desire that the impetus behind the idea of the, the theory of futilitarianism is to try and avoid descending into nihilism, um, uh, trying to to actually to, to expose, to show the futility of kind of everyday life in the 21st century as a means to try and construct something that can actually um, move beyond that futility, it can actually counter that futility, uh, uh, to, to build something that doesn't end up in nihilism. And that's the kind of the main impetus that I, that I draw out in that distinction in, in the introduction. 
Yeah, as you say, it's a relatively short discussion in the book, but but I think a lot hinges on on that distinction, um, which is why I wanted to which is why I wanted to bring it up. Um, so let's so let's then talk a little bit about utility. Uh, what's the basic idea here? For I mean, I suspect lots of people in our audience will know, but um, let's uh, let's run through it anyway, and then and then talk about how the idea started to insinuate itself into not just our collective consciousness here, but also in terms of our practices in everyday life. Yeah, I think that's really, um, that's obviously kind of central to, to the book. And, um, and I think, so, so the concept of utility, I, I draw back into the kind of intellectual history of, of that term, particularly back to, to Benthamite's uh, utilitarianism, which is the idea of Jeremy Bentham, the kind of late 18th, early 19th century um, social reformer and philosopher, English um, social reformer and philosopher, um, and what he calls the principle of utility, um, which is essentially the property of, a, an, a, of an object that, that produces pleasure over pain. Um, and eventually this idea grew um, into um, interventions by later utilitar- utilitarian thinkers like John Stuart Mill, it grew into the concept of the greatest happiness principle, which I'm sure many people might be aware of, um, which is effectively that the most co- moral course of action is the one that generates the most happiness for the greatest number of people. That's the kind of simple definition of, of kind of utilitarianism mm-hmm. and of the greatest happiness uh, principle. Um, but it's also important that, that utilitarianism is a kind of a, a, is a, a, a consequentialist ethics so it's the moral morality is judged by the consequences of an action and not by kind of pre-reflection that occurs before an action takes place. But it's also an aggregate of ethics, um, which is really important in the context of capitalism. And I might touch on that in a minute or two, um, because the, the measurement of utility or of happiness or of pleasure, whatever you call it, takes place at an individual level initially and then is aggregated to the level of the collective. So we say this even play out in our kind of societies now with the logic of kind of statistics or surveys where the the social whole is constructed entirely through individual inputs. That's very much at the base of of Benthamite utilitarianism. And then Bentham's ideas of utility and subsequent utilitarian thoughts of utility had a really strong influence on the rise of economic science in the 19th century, um, especially classical, neoclassical economists um, from economists uh, as David Ricardo and uh, William Stanley Jevons. Um, in fact, actually, the um, the editor of, of um, Bentham's collective works, Werner Stark, he draws a direct, direct parallel between Bentham and Ricardo. He calls them mm-hmm. um, flesh of one flesh, blood of one blood, because they share the belief that man is essentially a selfish animal and that it is useless to fight that selfishness. Um, so then I chart in the opening chapter of the book, I chart the, the grounding of, uh, this principle of utility and, and the, um, influence of utilitarianism on economic science into the 20th century. And then the emergence of a kind of, of an anti-utilitarian thinking in the wildly contrasting ideas of John Maynard Keynes and Friedrich Hayek, you're both vehemently critical of Bentham's ideas but from completely different directions. So 
Keynes, in many ways, tries to retain that kind of collective intention of utilitarianism, whereas Hayek has the emphasis on the, the idea of society as a collection of, of individual interests. So I, part of the aim in the book is that, the, you know, there is a kind of strong uh, discipline now of the intellectual history of, uh, of neoliberalism. And the kind of opening chapter of the book here is, is, is to chart a kind of alternative, um, not, not a different, because I think the intellectual histories that exist are extremely important, but, but the relationship between utilitarianism and neoliberalism hasn't really been charted. And that's, that was the kind of the impetus for the, the main part of the book. Um, and it's from there that the, the examination of um, uh, futilitarianism kind of emerges from the kind of historical foundations built in that opening chapter of the book. So you go on in, in the next chapter to describe this creature called uh, Homo Futilitus. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this person. And, and, and I think especially uh, the community that uh, such a person lives in or uh, creates uh, essentially for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Again, this is another thing that people um, have kind of picked up on that term. It's funny when you write the book, you're never quite sure what are what's going to resonate yeah exactly resonate and it's often things that kind of surprise you uh, but yeah so this this creature this figure homo futilitas is is a, a i mean in many ways a kind of playful um conception um and and what i kind of describe it a kind of evolution of, of the more established kind of homo economicus mm-hmm. um but it kind of it goes back to to uh human capital theory essentially and this chapter is mainly a critique of, of human capital theory and, and the kinds of um, subjectification that take place as a result of human capital theory. So so human capital theory, in a very short um, description, uh, emerged as an extremely important part of kind of neoliberal economic thinking, particularly in the work of someone like Gary Becker um, from the Chicago School of Economics. And in a very brief, basic way, it, it's essentially seeing... The human being seeing ourselves as a form of capital so that everything we do is a is a kind of investment in in our human capital and this logic is often used you know to in the kind of i guess in universities in the kind of realm that we work in to, to justify the fact that students should have to pay yeah pay for their education because um it's they're making an investment in their future human capital. Um, and it's basically their responsibility, whether it's a good investment or a bad investment. Um, and therefore, education transforms from something like a social right to something that citizens should get uh, as, as citizens to something that people invest in, in themselves. And they must make the right, it, they must make the right investment. Um, and then of course, this, uh, again, which I touch on later in the book, but, feeds into the decline of, of the humanities and, and things like that. But I can talk about that a bit later if we want to. Sure. Um, and Foucault, Michel Foucault, kind of, he, he identified this, this kind of development within with neoliberal thought. Um, and he came up with the, the kind of famous kind of catchphrase of um, we become entrepreneurs of the self yeah. um, in, the, in the neoliberal period. So life, therefore, becomes this almost kind of permanent commercial project so in that chapter um i spent a bit of time uh doing a kind of close reading of 
was what's quite a fame, quite a well-known essay called "The Brand Called You" by a business writer called Tom Peters. It's kind Tom of Peters. late nineties. Yep. Um, and in that book, he talks basically and and completely um, unironic and uh, um, ways about how we which is must... kind of an amazing thing to pull off if you think about it. It is quite incredible, and I think that's the scary thing about it. It's not that, that <laughs> an essay that an essay like this exists because you can imagine that it exists. Sure, but that the person writing it is so sincere about it. <laughs> I think this is kind of yeah. this um, is terrific. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he very unashamedly talks about that we must become kind of head marketers of of me Inc. and um, everything we do must be thinking about how we look to other people and um, and and um, I, I draw a little bit there on on the kind of German media theorist Bing Chul Han, who has this idea that that we are we are no longer subjects; we have become projects. And that we're always reinventing, reinventing ourselves, seeing ourselves as something that needs to be worked on. Um, and actually, this logic of self-branding really encapsulates, I think, that that process. And another quote that I used in that chapter, which I found deeply terrifying, which but which again the person saying it found it kind of said it very sincerely, was from Jeff Bezos. Um, who said um, your self-brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And this to me is, is and this leads into what you're talking about, the idea of community, that, that like, this is such a succinct definition of paranoia. Yeah. Um, and it can only lead, if we're constantly thinking about what people are saying about us when we're not in the room, it can only lead to, to what I call, therefore, a, a paranoid community. Um, so, so a community of, of people who are brands, of self-brands, is always characterized by need uh, and distrust. These are the two kind of things I identify. So the one is the need for others to buy into one's brand, but also the distrust that others will or have or have or will continue to buy into that brand. Um, because you can never know what people are saying about you when you're not in the room. Absolutely. So it creates this constant need to, to be reinventing yourself to tr- to selling yourself essentially um and wendy brown the, the, the kind of famous theorist of neoliberalism she makes that point that that uh, under this kind of neoliberal rationality selling one's soul has become kind of quoted in it's just you know as as um it's what you uh, do yeah it's the only thing you can do but it's just um and it's so it leads to this this very perverted sense of community um, which I think you touched on in the, in the question, um, a community that that is um, defined by by competition and paranoia, um, and it, it's uh, it, it, I, I draw a little bit here on Marx, uh, which he he talks about the kind of illusory community of capitalism, um, where freedom only really exists for the ruling classes, and for Marx, real freedom, real community is where individuals obtain their freedom through their associations with others. But this is really at odds with kind of neoliberal rationality, where freedom is always understood as as freedom from others. Um, so what I'm kind of trying to do in that chapter is to lay out the kind of impact that that such a conception of society has on our our individual subjectivities, but also the way that we interact with other people. And this leads to the rise, therefore, of, of what I call the kind of homo futilitas, this being who's constantly trying to sell sell itself to other people 
and tr constantly trying to define itself as different from other people, but in doing so finds itself trapped in this kind of futile endeavor of, um, of trying to be seen, of trying to sell oneself and ending up in further debt, ending up doing jobs that they don't want to be doing, ended up doing jobs that are, you know, as David Graeber called bullshit jobs, jobs that have mm -hmm. no social utility and things like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I've done some work on the idea of employability, and, and there's a lot of parallel there. Um, and it's not just a matter of creating, this, as you said, I mean, and it's a perfect phrasing of the community of, of competition and paranoia, but it's also just the sort of sheer exhaustion of it. Yeah. yeah. That, that if you're constantly worried about what other people are saying behind your back, and, and as you and as as you quote, that you, you're no longer a subject but a project. It's just, you know, at some point, you, you, the system breaks down just out of sheer overuse. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the kind of psychological impact of, of behaving like that, of constantly, part of the reason that enables us to be human is to be able to set aside the, 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 the fact that people are talking about us, that people have ideas of us that we don't know. <laughs> And if we if we keep that front and center for constantly thinking about what people are thinking about us, um, it was completely crippling. Kind of, um, yeah. Um, we it's a thing that we don't want to know. What we shouldn't know because it would stop us from actually living. And it, but then it seems there's an, almost an entire industry built around trying to trying to determine what people you know the you know online reputation managers and and things along those lines um that you know and then you you have some interesting things in i think the next chapter about about the university but you know what are students saying about you in online fora and you know things along those lines yeah and that's interesting here in in new zealand um we don't have some of those um you know like the rate is it rate my professor or yeah yeah, yeah. kind of um public um uh uh evaluations of of teaching or of other things as we have you know student evaluations and things like that but they're kind of, of internal to the university but yeah but even so even that the way that kind of manifests in a way that you might go into a classroom and teach students you're constantly th you're constantly thinking about how you'll be seen in the kind of public sphere and what it's not even just how you'll be seen but what that says about you as a person right um yeah, and part of the, the impetus for this the book is is that, that to show that this sense of futility that I kind of name as futility, this experience that we have that we all experience in, in slightly different ways, um, is actually not a defect of our individual characters, even though we all seem are kind of seem to feel like it is or are encouraged to feel like it that it's it's a defect of our individual characters. It's actually integral to kind of the system in which we live in, particularly with its kind of neoliberal mutation and, and the kind of subject, the subjective normalities that it, um, uh, it engenders. So one of the terms that draws your attention is the idea of responsibility. Mm. Um, and, and so let's talk a little bit about what yeah. makes this you know, seemingly positive attribute, a particularly troublesome one in a futilitarian age. And, and here I'm especially interested in your reflections on the university as a system. Yeah, well, thanks, um, Tom. So, yeah, so the lot, I mean, the logic of um, 
particularly personal responsibility is is so central to neoliberalism um, and many other scholars have um, noted this um point you know wendy brown talks about the process of responsabilization the passing of of systemic problems on onto the individual um others have talked about you know that neoliberalism is a kind of personal responsibility crusade um but i what i kind of look at here is how that that the, the logic and the, the rationality of personal responsibility cements the, the futilitarian condition, the condition that I identify in, in chapters one and two, because everything is then seen as a reflection of our, of our individual characters and our abilities or inabilities um, to cope. Um, and so I look in this chapter at the kind of political construction of, of personal responsibility um, which um, immediately or uh, uh, um, uh, initially um, occurred under with the new rights that arise of you know of Reagan um, in the US, Thatcher uh, in the UK, um, and and in other places as well. Uh, but Reagan in his one kind of inaugural speech, I think it's inaugural speech. Um, I think it, so. Yeah, and he makes the point where he says, you know, if no one. If no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? And what you see here is this kind of center, centering of the individual as as the primary source of responsibility. And you basically you must look after your own house if you're going to do anything about someone else's house. And I mean that obviously builds into a kind of project of of seeing the government as as kind of antithetical to to individual freedom and so on and so forth. That was really central to Reagan's politics. And then similar with Thatcher in the UK, you know, the very famous phrase that she came up with, there's no such thing as society, right. only individuals and their families. So this kind of dismantling of, of the idea of society and that we're all just kind of individuals look, we, and we must look after our own ourselves and our families um, before we kind of think about any kind of social solidarity, anything like that. And I mean, that's well been well documented and quite logical, I think, to the New Right project. But what I spend a lot of time in this chapter is actually looking at the left-wing origins of, of personal responsibility, and particularly with the rise of the kind of third way left under Clinton and Blair, and then into Obama as well. Um, and personal responsibility is really central to, to Clinton's um, uh, politics, um, particularly the dismantling of, of the welfare state that occurs under under Clinton, um, especially the the personal the, the act that actually has a name is named Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation yeah. Act, um, and in here and and with his rhetoric around that this dismantling of the welfare state, um, he constructs this idea of dependency as as a kind of mortifying condition to be dependent on the state is is to lead a kind of less dignified life than than others um so it's a kind of um a shaming of of the idea of dependency and in a sense that you are not as much you're not as strong or resilient individual as other people a blair builds in britain blair builds on the kind of clinton um, reimagining of responsibility with blending kind of Thatcherism and and the third way left. Um, some scholars have called this um, Blacherism, which I always find quite funny, <laughs> um, a funny uh, neologism. But um, 
but he he links personal responsibility very much with this idea of opportunity. So he he it's almost like a kind of carrot and stick or, or or contract with with the with the public. He says basically those who take on greater personal responsibility will get more opportunities. So it's um a kind of um a, yeah a relationship between taking responsibility for your own situation will get you more opportunities. Whether that actually is the case is, is very debatable. Um, but that's the logic behind Blair's thinking. And then Obama um, brings in a kind of new version of, of responsibility in response, personal responsibility in response to the, the global financial crisis. So in his inaugural address in 2009, he, he calls for what he calls a new era of responsibility for American citizens. But this is for, you know, each individual American citizen must take greater responsibility for themselves. But at the same time, uh, it's kind of absolving responsibility for those who actually caused the crisis, which is, you know, the financial sector and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I call this in this chapter, you know, the futilitarian spirit of capitalism. So where previous previous spirits of capitalism, you know, um, you know, from Max Weber's work or um, even... Uh, Luke Voltansky, Eve Chiapello, their book, New Spirit of Capitalism. Uh, those spirits of capitalism at least promise some sort of reward for the hard work of taking, of the hard work of, of, of um, capital accumulation. Whereas in Obama's speech, the kind of what's really lacking is a kind of sense that this, that um, American citizens will get anything for taking greater responsibility. In fact, he says that, that this new era of responsibility is merely the price of citizenship. Um, so it's a kind of new um, turn, which I think overlaps with um, kind of post-2008 neoliberalism that, that um, you know, some scholars have defined as, a, as punitive neoliberalism. Um, Pierre Dardot, Christian Laval, the, the French kind of um, thinkers um, call that post 2008 neoliberalism uh, a war on the population, um, and you start to see the kind of the seeds of that in, in Obama's speech. Um, so overall, here what I'm kind of situating the the idea of personal responsibility is in with within the wider project of of progressive neoliberalism, what Nancy Fraser calls progressive neoliberalism, which is the kind of blending of neoliberal economics with a progressive politics of recognition. Um, so she argues, um, you know, that Clinton talked the talk of diversity while walking the walk of Goldman Sachs. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it's a, a very a nice kind of turn of phrase, but but I think really taps into how the left actually complete the project that's begun by by um, Reagan and Thatcher, um, and 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 kind of blasé terms, the left kind of make neoliberalism cool. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So the, this chapter contains, and I don't know if you have your a copy of the book in front of you, but on, on page 93, um, there's just what I regard as just an absolutely terrific um, kind of distillation here of, of some of the things you're talking about. I was wondering if you might 
wouldn't mind reading um, this paragraph. Yeah, so which, uh, is it one, my ultimate point here? Yeah, yeah, my, ulti- yeah. my ultimate point. Yeah, I can read that, yeah. So my ultimate po- point here is that the denigration of the notion of dependency in favour of personal responsibility undermines an ontological necessity. We are and always will be dependent on others for our existential safety. No amount of personal responsibility can escape this fact. Without any safeguards outside our individual selves, we cannot trust the external world will hold up its end of the bargain. There are endless events that can put us at risk, economic downturn, redundancy, pandemics, and the inability to guarantee our security outside of ourselves can only breed a culture of fear. We cannot know the inner workings of the market, the minds of our employers, or even our bodies, but we can hazard a guess, which can lead to crippling paranoia and hypochondria. This is the real opportunity of responsibility that new right and third way politicians are so fond of encouraging, the opportunity to feel profoundly precarious in our own responsibility. So I have to tell you, Neil, I, I, I read a lot of this kind of material uh, in my work. Uh, and I don't know that I have ever uh, read a, a, a more brilliant distillation of our contemporary condition than this paragraph. Oh, that's very, very kind. <laughs> Thank um, you. It, it's just, uh, it just touches on so many things um, and, and is so eloquently expressed that, um, well, it's worth the price of the book. Uh, <laughs> Thank if, you. If only for that. Um, let's, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about semio futility. Um, so what do we mean by this term and, and how do you find it mobilized, uh, in, in our culture today? Yeah. Um, so that this term kind of surprised me. I don't really know where it came from. And it was, um, really one of the first things I wrote that came part of the book. Um, so the process that this chapter looks at these two simultaneous and interlinked processes that I define as semi-futility and symbolic indigestion. And and they um they they are an effect of of um the rise of kind of digital communication and and the, what I call the kind of hyper production of, of of language, um in in digital communication. Um, others have called this you know um Franco Beefo Berardi called talks about the idea of semio inflation, which essentially mm-hmm. um that so much so much language is is circulating um in the same way that under normal forms of inflation, too much money or whatever is, is, is circulating. And it leads to the devaluation of, of, of meaning, essentially. The, the, there's too many words circulating, therefore their meaning kind of has less value. And semi-futility kind of builds on, on this idea. Um, so semi-futility is essentially is the inability of language to, to create an affect, um, to have meaning. Um, so I use the example of the term, the overuse of the term crisis, for instance, um, in contemporary kind of uh, media in particular. And um, so when everything becomes described as crisis, then crisis becomes the norm. Um, and it, then it makes it extremely difficult to use the word crisis to elevate something beyond the norm. So the term crisis, um, the use of the term crisis stops to have meaning and this ceases to have meaning and that's that's what i mean by semi-futility so another good example um is the use of the term climate emergency so i live in Mm -hmm. um dunedin in in new zealand and in otago 
And the, the city council here declared Dunedin a climate emergency a couple of years ago. And there's a kind of sense, but that hasn't, no one's really behaving as if it's an emergency. Um, yeah. And it's this, this word emergency, which has supposed to have this kind of affect, it's supposed to, to provoke us in a certain way to make us do something has actually lost that kind of affect. It, it doesn't, it's just a word amongst other words. And, and this is what I mean by, this is an effect of semi-futility, of the overproduction of language. Meaning becomes increasingly detached from its use and, and, the, and words be, uh, meaning becomes kind of flattened out. Words cease to have this, this effective capacity. Um, and this also bleeds into then the other process that I call semi- symbolic um, indigestion. Because meaning requires digestion, and and digestion requires time. You know, it's a, it's a, in, in the body, it's a kind of catabolic process. You know, breaking down these larger chunks of food in the body, but but in communication language, into kind of smaller digest digestible molecules. <coughs> Sorry, but when, but when language circulates constantly, and we're we're at the same time you know, producer and consumer of language. There's no no space or time to digest. So it's just this kind of constant noise. Um this is a phenomenon that, that Jody Dean calls, you know, talk with without response. You know, everyone is talking but no one is listening. Um and so this lack of listening, this and this inability to digest meaning and or digest language and turn it into meaning both feeds the process of semi-futility, but also it, it undermines our capacity to build kind of common bond, bonds because listening is really central to building kind of commonalities uh, between us. Um, but if no one is listening and everyone is just producing, there's there's really, it, it, it actually, um, it, it feeds and um, cements the kind of individualizing um, process that occurs on, under neoliberalism. There's a, a quote that I'm fond of reciting from my students uh, from Mark Twain, who says that the, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is like the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. And, and, and reading this chapter, though, it, it made me think that, that perhaps uh, in an era of semi-futility, there's no more lightning. Mm, that's a really nice way of, way of putting it, yeah. Um, so you start the chapter on the politics of futility with an anecdote from a 2017 speech of Obama, where he provides us with the admonition that we get the politicians we deserve. Uh, so, um, yeah, that was really irritating. So what does this uh, almost tautological phrase tell us so much about politics in the utilitarian era? Yeah, it was it was um, annoyed me as well when I, when I saw that because it really uh, absolving any kind of responsibility and, and maybe even and misunderstanding the, the the misunderstanding the election. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, at a fundamental level, you still come back to the fact that you know, in in a functioning democracy, Hillary Clinton would have been the president because yeah, she exactly. Received, yeah, she got more votes. Yeah, millions, but it wasn't yeah. even close. So, exactly. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, it was it was missed missed the point on so many levels, but I think it was part, maybe part of a project of deflecting a kind of responsibility on the part of himself or of the Democratic Party. Um, but you're right on a very fundamental level, it really does 
does un, um, not understand exactly how how democracy yeah. works. Um, but more importantly, I think it's part of a um, of a wider uh, process of of de- depoliticization that occurs under under neoliberalism. Um, and he seems to to I think in this in this um, statement suggest that there's a kind of lack of political desire or political will amongst the kind of populace in, in the US at this time. And I make the point here that actually not, not that I, in any way I'm suggesting that you shouldn't vote, but to see not voting in that election as a lack of political desire actually misses the point that some people might have voted that not voting was actually an expression of political desire to not have the choice between these two figures. Yeah. Um, but also, I think more importantly in this chapter, um, I think the more personal question we could ask there is, you know, you know, rather than we get the politicians we deserve, is why, why have we come to deserve this? Um, and so this chapter, instead of, of looking at politics on a kind of macro level, which, you know, most political theorists will do, um, I, I delve into kind of micro political um, actions as a way to think think about politics on a bigger level through these kind of micro actions. And so I look at that, particularly at actions that, that seem to be challenging the status quo, but actually reinforce these kind of neoliberal forms of, of depoliticization. And the, the three key, key micro political actions I look at are bycotting. Um, yeah. This idea of voting with your dollar and, and anti-natalism. Uh, bycotting um, is a kind of form of consumer activism, um, and it obviously evolves from the idea of boycotting, but where boycotting entails, you know, deliberately not buying a product or not watching a certain TV show or so on and so forth. Bycotting, inflicting a punishment on, on yeah, someone who's... exactly, yeah. Bycotting is that you deliberately buy a product that is in opposition to the, the other products. Um, and what it allows us to do is is to, to both have the political but also consume at the same time. Um, and I find It encourages this, a kind of virtue signaling on the part of capitalist it, enterprises. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. You can see how how certain capitalist enterprises and and products then kind of kind of manipulate um, the way consumers in in a way to make it feel to make the consumer feel like they are being political, while at the same time they're they are merely just just kind of consuming. Um, the vote with your dollar um, phrase um, I deliberately use because for for a couple of reasons and I'll, I'll explain that. Second, it is used by this organization called Green America, which is quite you know a big um, kind of uh, uh, what's it, environmental um, mm-hmm. political kind of organization, um, and they have this uh, toolkit. Essentially, it's called Vote with Your Dollar Tool Toolkit, kit. and the premise of it is that the decisions we make with our money, with our credit cards, reflect our value system. But really, interestingly, they set they set this idea of voting with your dollar up against the idea of governmental politics. So they see governmental politics as getting in the way of our value system. And they, they see, and very much they, they refer to Washington with this kind of very deep suspicion. And what I show here is that this, this vote with your dollar, this, this suspicion of governmental politics 
overlaps very much with many of the neoliberal thinkers and the way that they thought about governmental politics. And actually Ludwig von Mises, um, an Austrian neoliberal thinker, um, who's quite a big following um, and still does with many um, kind of neoliberals in the US, he actually had had a very similar idea to voting with your dollar, um, where he said that the, the average man is both better informed and less corruptible um, in the decisions he makes as a consumer than as a voter at political elections. And this is the kind of the, the this green America, which we would, you know, invite is an environmental pol- political organization. And yet it seems to be advocating positions that are extremely um, uh, the overlap intimately with a kind of neoliberal view of, of politics. Um, this idea that we essentially by voting with our with our dollar we are making a difference to the world and we can sidestep this this governmental politics that seems to get in the way of of our freedom and then the final one is the anti-natalism uh, which is a kind of growing again environmental politics around you know that people should stop having children that's the best way to <laughs> to prevent climate change um, and then here you see that kind of uh, i think uh, an example of you know Mark Fisher's point of, of capitalist realism, where where capitalism uh, and occupies the whole realm of the imaginable, and so it becomes easier to basically end the human race than than to end capitalism. Um, but also necessarily doesn't reflect the kind of uneven distribution of of the way that we pollute the world. That it's actually the kind of big countries in the global north that are causing the most. It's it's the carbon dependence of these societies that are causing the, the, the kind of problem towards the problem of climate change. Um, but again, we, we reflect the responsibility for the climate crisis back on the individual. So it's your choice. If you choose to have children, you're contributing to climate change um, and so on and so forth. So again, it reflects, again, the, the, the process of responsabilization that occurs under neoliberalism that I that I charted in, in chapter three of the book. And I you even see it into some movements like um, Extinction Rebellion. Um, uh, there was an example of, of someone carrying a sign at an Extinction Rebellion protest in, in London that said socialism or extinction. And yes. then this moves, you know, the XR UK XR movement to come out and say, you know, we don't support the sign, we are not a political movement, and so on and so forth. So this idea that we can't that that it's actually taking environmental politics away from a wider political project, um, and this is this is um, it corresponds. It, it's not an- antithetical to neoliberalism. It actually corresponds with neoliberal forms of depoliticization, um, and I think this is what I call, therefore, the kind of politics of of futility. So, your book came out. Uh, kind of in the middle of uh, this pandemic um, that has continued to upend the lives of millions. Um, Just for context, my home state is looking at hospitalization rates that actually exceed uh, where they were at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, So how do you see the the relationship between the utilitarian condition and um, and our attempts to grapple with this. Yeah, and I think I, I, I've probably, I probably speak from a kind of, well, I speak from a very privileged position in, in global terms, but also from, from being in New Zealand where yeah. 
we've really avoided the the to, to this point we've avoided the the real devastating impact of of COVID nineteen, um, and we are now you know Omicron has in the last couple of days just made it into the community, and we are as as even politicians and and experts have kind of said we are very unprepared for an Omicron outbreak, so we may well experience the same kind of things that that you're experiencing as well in your home state, um. And this this chapter also poses on a kind of uh, uh, writing level the difficulty of um, mm-hmm. writing about something that's happening at that moment because by the time the book comes out the chapter is already sure da- dated and especially with the pandemic the way that things have, have changed so so drastically throughout and the variants and so on and so forth so what I try to do in this chapter is is more rather than kind of make a comment on on the pandemic it is to try and locate some of the thinking, particularly around the, of the pandemic response within this this wider theory of utilitarianism. Um, and initially to do that is to show how utilitarian thinking has been really um, central to many of the COVID responses. Um, probably less so in New Zealand, which is perhaps why our response has been successful. And um, there's other reasons for that also, but. But in other countries, particularly in the US and the UK, parts of Europe, Australia, um, there's always, there was very initially from the get-go, there kind of cost-benefit analysis, essentially, about how many deaths are acceptable right. to protect the economy. Um, and I actually use the example of uh, the, the vice-chancellor of Melbourne University writing a piece in the Australian, Australian newspaper where he literally he doesn't even disguise the kind of um, discussion. He, he basically makes the question, you know, how valuable is a 90-year-old life compared to a 23-year-old life? And, you know, that this 23-year-old can contribute to the economy, can contribute to, to building the economy in the aftermath of the pandemic. 90-year-old is only a drain in this, this economy. Therefore, we need to weigh up, like, whether we just let this thing go through. Basically, a kind of cull yeah. of, of older people. And writing this in a kind of main, uh, one of the kind of major uh, newspapers um, in Australia, it's kind of sense of how central this, or how um, utilitarians have become really front and centre to many of the responses to the pandemic. I also look at the first CARES Act that was brought in in the US under Trump, um, which Robert Brenner, the, the kind of Marxist historian, called a, a billionaire coronavirus bonanza. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the way that, um, billi- you know, and we see stories every single day of how the kind of billionaires and owners of, you know, big companies like Amazon or so on have, have made a lot of money during the pandemic. Um, but I would now uh, slightly hazard that, that analysis of CARES Act with, the, the second CARES Act was brought in under um, Biden, which, which again, I mean, there's certain problems with it, but certainly seems a bit more, um, uh, a more responsible form of, of uh, kind of intervention in the economy that actually does on some level kind of protect um, uh, people more, more than so than, than the first one that came out. And I also use another example from Australia, which is um, the pandemic, uh, pushed the government or allowed the government to um, bring in a reform to the university system in Australia um, and particularly uh, bring in what they call the Jobs Ready Graduate Programme. 
And this mm. basically entails um, raising the cost of humanities courses. So now in Australia, humanities papers or courses will cost, you know, up to three times as much as, say, a business degree or engineering. Um, uh, yeah, engineering and, and things like that, essentially, so that you trying again and that as part of a kind of wider political project to to dismantle the humanities um um you know as will davies has, has called in the U, in the uk um he he starts you know the the humanities have become the enemy within um and so again so what i'm trying to look at here is is that some how some of these responses to the pandemic actually are furthering uh uh a, a, pol- a p- kind of political project that was already existing before the pandemic and it's an- allowed many governments to bring in policies that they would that they that they would have liked to done but the, the the pandemic has has given them the cover to do that so for instance you know dismantling humanities uh, protecting kind of corporate interests um even the rise of things like telehealth you know this is neoliberals have been right. calling for you know telehealth for years because it it can help, you know, um, lower the lower cost. Of, yeah, exactly. And now the pandemic, um, you know, in the US, Australia, other places have brought in kind of telehealth um, legislation. Uh, and even Trump, you know, he said, he literally said that the rise of telehealth has been one of the, the best things that's happened out in the pandemic. So there are these little kind of offshoots that as we talk, you know, the, you know, the return of the state, um, uh, you know, all these kind of new interventionist policies. Maybe this is the end of neoliberalism. There are little signs that's a kind of mutant neoliberalism, and to borrow the phrase of Will Callison, Zachary Mafredi, is also emerging out of out the pandemic. Um, um, something that I think we need to be really conscious of and to analyze as best we can. So as we wrap up, um, I want to ask, or I'm going to start this, by quoting from uh, the blurb from Wendy Brown. Um, Neil Villele offers a rich tour of what he calls the futilitarian condition brought about by sorry, neoliberalization. Systemic and ubiquitous, this condition deprives us of meaningful lives and robs the world of a future. With an elegant pen, reader-friendly philosophical thoughtfulness, and scores of examples, Villele explains that gnawing feeling isn't what I'm doing in my job, ecological practices, ethical consumerism, and more, really futile. Becoming common, he argues, is our only way out. So let's talk about becoming common. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, thank you today um, to read, reading that blurb from Wendy Brown. I was just um, kind of blown away at the fact that she, she even did that. Um, and a really lovely reading of the book. Um yeah, so, so this process of becoming common, I argue, is central to how we might confront um, futilitarianism. Um, so, so in doing so, I see futility, the concept of futility acting in, in a similar way to something like precarity. Um, you know, and the way that precarity and the rise of the precariat um, has has really um, helped find some, some uh, you know, very good kind of political uh, movements around that around people who share this experience of precarity. My argument is that the idea of futility can encompass more people than the term precarity, because 
not all, many people wouldn't actually see themselves as precarious. Um, they might have a stable job or assets and so on and so forth, but they still might recognize this experience of utility in, in somewhere or, or form. So the process of becoming common is essentially a process of recognizing our, our shared, um, but you know, differentiated experience of fertility, since it, you know, some people experience much more crippling examples of futil- futility than, than others. But at the same time, in recognizing that we share an experience of futility, this can lead to a process of, of what I call you know, becoming common to one another. And this becoming common has become so difficult for many of the reasons that I've talked about and we've talked about today. Um, in uh, under neoliberalism, because it it it's forcing us to see each other as as competitors, um, so we need something that that can actually that we can share, and I think futility among and precarity and many other words can help in that process of becoming common. Um, and so therefore, I argue this idea of futility can become the basis of a new kind of collective political subject in the same way that precariat has. And I call this subject, you know, the futilitariat. Um, can take, I'm sure, many other words, and and whether that actually really is a term that, that brings people together is debatable. But, um, but basically, that 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 we need to start a process of becoming common, as Wendy Brown said, it's it's our only way out. Um, and perhaps futility can be a way, or can be a starting point of of recognizing our shared experience of futility. This could be the starting point of building something that can actually confront that futility. And that's the kind of hope of the book. The aim of the book is to, to lay the theoretical foundations for the building of that, that common and collective political subject. Well, let's hope. Um, it, it's, again, it, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful text. Uh, I highly recommend it to people who are looking for a diagnosis of this present age. And yeah, uh, the, the idea of becoming common, I think, is uh, is kind of the key if uh, if we're going to bounce back from all of this. Um, Neil Vallely, thank you for your time today. Oh, thanks so much, Tom. It was great to t- chat to you. Um, once again, my guest today has been Neil Vallely, the author of Futilitarianism, Neoliberalism, and the Production of Uselessness by Goldsmith Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network.